Welcome to The Systemic Way. In this episode, Cesar and I are talking to Inga Britt Krauser about an article that she wrote that was published in the Journal of Family Therapy in February 2022. It asks us the question, can we teach race and equity? So using the article, Cesar and I had the opportunity to speak to Britt really about her journey and career and what led her to write this article at this time. We have the opportunity to explore her career in anthropology and also ideas around race, ethnicity and culture as a process. And what else would you like to say about it, Cesar? Oh my God, it, I was nervous to meet Brit, to be honest with you, and really try to kind of critically engage in these big topics huge topics yeah. to try and de- deconstruct some of these ideas with her but I found her so accessible when it, the ideas were re- truly illuminated for me when I was when we were talking to her so I'd read the paper I've read it twice <laughs> I read her previous works as well in trying to prepare to, for this but just having the opportunity for her to to kind of just talk to them um, in a way that just felt very natural and I, I found very accessible and I, I think there was a it, it stretched me as much as it stretched me I, I I definitely left the podcast feeling like I'd learned something or learned a lot and I, I guess that's what this whole project of doing podcasts are about so as much it was a real honor to meet Brit genuinely a real honor and um it was a stretching conversation for me personally and I but I do feel very much um enriched by it and I hope people have a similar experience was there anything particular Judy that stuck out for you reflecting on it wow I think the word that stuck out for me really was reciprocity I don't know I hope I've said that right um because I think Brit sort of really invites you to go in to yourself and to see what's there and to think about how that might be used and reflected really in in the world around you she she invites you to kind of push the boundaries of of where you are as a practitioner really um and i think she's given me a lot to take away and think about I'm sure others will, will get something like that as well. Yeah, definitely. There was something that I took from it in terms of really getting into depth of these ideas and these concepts and avoiding the pitfalls and some of the traps that gets identified in the discussion of being quite surface level when we're talking about race or culture and difference. And I guess the, the role that fear can play with that to stop you from going deeper. Mm. I hope people people enjoy this. Um, we will put a link to her work in, in the podcast as well, but we're really keen to hear from, from listeners and what, what your views are on the paper as well as the podcast itself. And we'd really hear, love to hear some feedback and where, where this conversation that you're about to hear with Britain has taken you. Welcome to The Systemic Way. Welcome Dr. Inga Brick Krauser, who is a PhD social anthropologist, consultant systemic psychotherapist and lead of the professional doctorate in systemic psychotherapy at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. Britt is an international systemic psychotherapy teacher, trainer, supervisor, visiting professor in a social anthropology at the University of Oslo and consultant to several con- contemporary 
anthropological research projects. We are truly honoured to have you with us, Britt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm honoured to be here, Cesar. Yeah, thank you thank so much you. for being interested in my work. That's mm-hmm. It's always an honour when people take an interest, you know. You slog away for years and years and years, and then when people take an interest, it's really nice. Yeah, we've we've been we've been chasing you for a, a long time, haven't we, Britt? Months, probably. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> when we first started this, um, yeah. so yeah, really, it's um really glad to have you with us and, and to talk about your work and a a paper that you've written recently. But we'll we'll get there. Um, so as an opening question, we're really interested in when our guests come onto the systemic way, one about their work, but also about their own journey and their own story into systemic family therapy, but also what kind of formed their idea about their interest in the the, the topic and the themes that we're thinking about. So I guess we start with um, a bit of your background, Britt. And so you began with studying philosophy and later European ethnology at the University of Copenhagen. This was followed by social anthropology at the London School of Economics, where you received a PhD. Can you tell us about the role these academic roots have played in shaping some of your main concerns and the areas of, of interest within systemic family therapy field? Okay. Well, but but as you know, systemic psychotherapists would always know that if you just talk about academic roots, you're leaving out some other roots mm-hmm. that are even more important. Um because the academic roots are driven by something else, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So I think I must have become interested in what we call kinship in social anthropology because I'm from a broken family. And so being brought up by my grandmother and actually probably having a very lonely childhood and wanting to have a bigger family, I think I became quite fascinated with, with families and kinship. And so in order to do anything at the University of Copenhagen, you have to study, then you then had to study philosophy. It was this very old fashioned system. So really my philosophy is just a kind of entry exam into the University of Copenhagen. But anthropology wasn't really very developed in the University of Copenhagen. And so that's why I went to ethnology, what they called ethnology, which interestingly is really almost anthropology with things in it, rather than just people. And it's quite interesting because, of course, currently in our research and in anthropology, things have become much more central. That's to say, actually objects, things. Mm -hmm. So I feel a bit like it's sort of come around, all around. But anyway, so all that led me to come to England and then to go to the LSE. And, well, I mean, you can't study anthropology without studying kinship. So kinship is extremely central. It's sort of what modernist social anthropology was built on, Um, different family systems, different kinship systems, and so on. So that became a very, very big focus when I later did my PhD uh, on, on fieldwork from Nepal. And what I was really interested in then was how 
caste systems as found in northern India would be reproduced by the kinship system or the family system that was there. So really a sort of relationship between politics and economics and, and daily life, daily out daily life's outlook kind of thing. So I did a whole, you know, PhD in that. And I wrote about kinship very much in my thesis. And then I came back from having done that and I had then two children. And then I was looking around for what else to do. And if you are a PhD in social anthropology, there's not a lot you can do other than teach or become an academic, as it were. So the first thing I really had to do was do some more research. And so I got a grant from Leverhulme together with psychiatrists at uh, UCL and the Middlesex Hospital. And we set up the Punjabi study, which I've kind of published on which was really looking into what is the meaning of mental illness in the Punjabi Sikh population. And I did an ethnography of the Sikhs in Bedford, which is where I still live. And it was that that sparked my interest in clinical work. So until then, I'd done absolutely no clinical work. Surprisingly, I I married a clinician, and he was with me in Nepal, but... I had not done any clinical work, but there I was sitting in the general practitioner's waiting room with both white British and Sikh people interviewing them because we did a comparative study. And I knew I wanted to be in the consulting room. I did not want to be in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. And so when the opportunity came up that you could do a sort of weeks introductory course to family therapy at the Marlboro Family Service with Alan Cooklin. And if you have to remember, this is before IFT properly went, got going and before AFT properly went going, and there wasn't a master's. Anyway, I went to do this one week at the Marlboro Family Service, where, of course, everybody was a family therapist. That was a tra- tradition there. And... Um, it just really, really caught my imagination. And then I went on a, on a course, and, and that became my, the beginning of my systemic career. I was interested, Britt, when you were talking about, um, well, one, first of all, it just so eloquent, the way you sort of described your journey. I had all these pictures of you sort of in Denmark and then going to university and then going to Nepal you sort of grew up in my mind as you as you were sharing your story um and I was curious really about what what it was about being a clinician that that you were attracted to making that shift well as I said first I knew I couldn't just be in the waiting room Mm. And and I also know that you can't really be in the consulting room without kind of being a clinician. Mm. It's very difficult to get access what happens in the consulting room without being a clinician. Mm-hmm. But I think there was another strand. And I think the other strand, which kind of only crystallized a bit later when I started writing in systemic psychotherapy, the other strand is that really ethnographic research is extremely close to a systemic inquiry, the one that we are taught and the one that we exercise when we see clients. 
because, you know, as an ethnographer, you are with people, you have to be curious about what they think and their setting and what the meaning of it all is. So actually my transition from from being an, well, I, I still count myself as an ethnographer. In fact, I now say I do my ethnography in the consulting room, you know, but the transition sort of into family therapy from social science research was really not that, I mean, it was just a revelation to me. Two different ways of doing the same thing, which is to ask extremely curious questions and to also be present yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I've always, I've always suffered by not having a background in social work or psychology or psychiatry in one way. But in another way, in the systemic field, I've also always had more to offer because from being an ethnographer, you have a broader view of a system. So I've always been able to offer something about that, you know, whereas clinicians are kind of more focused on, you know, what's happening here right now. The ethnographer is focused on what is all around us and what context are we in, you know. So I find the two really, really supportive of each other. And I can come back to that because that's really, really, really current now in the work I do. I'm really fascinated by the influence of people's kind of like core training before they become family therapists and what they bring in and some of the stuff that you're you're beginning to talk about there. And um, I'm interested in like systemic field has such a strong link to anthropology and its roots. And I want I want to know what your thoughts about what some of the kind of core ideas from anthropology we've continued to have endured and we continue to hold on to and what maybe perhaps you feel like we've lost in, in kind of modern, in the current state of family therapy of those original anthropological ideas. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Because the system as a, let's say, let's say pre-cybernetics, because Bateson was also pre-cybernetics. He discovered cybernetics. I mean, he didn't discover it, but he discovered that there were people working on it, systems theory and so on. But pre that, he was an anthropologist and he was member of a very sort of famous uh, modernist school called structural functionalism, which is basically the kind of system that we teach our students in the first year where we try to get away from it being the only way, but certainly we try and get this idea into our students' minds that there's a system, and if one bit of it changes, everything else changes. And it might have a structure, like if you go to Minuchin, it has a structure. It has generations, and it has alliances, and so on. So that really comes out of social science and out of anthropology, as Bateson was taught in the 30s by British anthropologists. So we kind of still keep that with us. But the real important thing about Bateson was that he sort of wanted to go further than that and be more interested in, okay, so there's a system, but actually what are the processes inside that system? And we're familiar with that, aren't we? Because we talk about patterns, we talk about what you can see happens again and again, and that's, of course, what's inside the system. So he was kind of really... Uh, an unusual social scientist for that for that time, uh, and in a sense, 
you know, that is the the, the challenge that those two, well, those two are in, in, in a way opposite, aren't they? One says it's a static system. The other one says it's a process. And actually, if you think about it, you can't really marry the two very easily, except saying it's feedback and everything stays the same. But actually, things don't stay the same. So the ideal process is also that things change. That's what we are interested in. So there's a tension between those two. And, and nowadays, it's really the latter that is much more prevalent. The idea that we have open systems, we don't have delineated systems. You know, the, the family is not boundaried by who we see or who we put on the genogram. We know that there's all sorts of things from the outside. And that really is something that was in Bateson. He wrote about it in his books. And, you know, I think we've become much more aware of the importance of keeping that in mind now. Being, although it is extremely hard to teach, you know, it's extremely hard to teach to first year um, uh, family therapy students, the implications of that, the complexity of that. But I think we still carry it and we kind of battle and struggle with it. So in many ways, we've come back to those ideas in a kind of, um, in a more developed way as, as the kind of, the, the kind of the profession's grown up. It's kind of gone back to some of those core ideas in a, in a more nuanced understanding. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, uh, I mean, I think I've done a little bit of pushing with this because I've tried to bring Bateson back into view, but not just the stuff that came from psychiatry, but the stuff that came from anthropology. So we, we might read steps, but, you know, traditionally we always only read the psychiatric papers. We very rarely read the ethnographic papers. And that, of course, is, you know, that, that's, that was such a loss for a long time. But then these ideas also came in through postmodernism and, uh, you know, questioning more the authority and the, and the static nature of systems, as it were. Yeah, you said you've done, in your career, you've done a lot of pushing um, of these, these ways. And I'm interested in, parts of your career of um i know you started you, with colleagues you set up the cross-cultural therapy service in 1993 yeah and um that was at the marlborough family service it was at the marlborough uh-huh yeah and I'm yeah just thinking about the kind of context of the time and, and what led you to to create that what what, what was the kind of the, the need and what did you had, had seen at the time and what were some of your hopes yeah i mean this was a very this, this was a long time, and 93 is a very different time, you know. Mm -hmm. And really, the thinking about difference, which remember, we, we are proud of being based on difference, aren't we? We say a difference, the difference is a difference, and whatever we say, and we quote these, we have these mantras. At the bottom line, we are basically <laughs> trying to explore difference, I believe. I think that's what Bateson brought. But it's very hard to keep all the differences that are relevant in mind. And so once you become a sort of profession or you become an institution, of course, some differences just go out of sight. And I think, you know, what 
what was out of sight, both probably in, in psychology and, and in general clinical professions, was, you know, the difference of race and culture and, and gender for that matter too. That was a bit out of sight. I mean, people had been, when I was doing my Punjabi field, I mean, obviously that was a study. Actually, the whole motivation for doing the study, trying to understand Punjabi ideas of mental illness, was actually trying to combat racism because it was very prevalent in psychiatry then to say that, well, us white people, we psychologize, whereas those people who are not white, they somatize. Mm -hmm. And so that was the background to that study. You know, we were going to go out as a medical anthropologist and say, damn it, that's not the case. We know it's not the case. We know that there are so many different ways of thinking psychology. And one of them may be through somatic ideas, may be through em em embodied notions. And, you know, can you stop talking this nonsense and, and actually discriminate on the basis of it because services weren't available? So this was a this was a context where I had gone, I'd gone to the training, and in the Marlborough Family Service, there were people who were thinking along similar lines. And then it was just lucky that we had we, we were able to write a, an application for money to start a project from the local authority. And we did then, myself and Anne Miller, who was a psychologist there, set up the project, which in the beginning was just a project. You know, we were trying to say, how do we get uh, more families from other, of course, it's situated in Westminster. So Westminster was a very multicultural borough even then. So how do we get more families from different backgrounds into services? Because we knew there was a need. And so this, that was very exciting. We, 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 recruited, we recruited six people, two Cantonese speakers, two Bangladeshi speakers, and two, Pakistan, two Urdu, Urdu speakers. And then we set up a sort of very brief, you know, sort of um, crash course in systemic ideas and practice. And, and we used a screen so that, you know, there'd always be one, say, one Cantonese speaker with a family in front, with a, mm -hmm. with a Chinese family. And then there would be Cantonese speaker behind who would translate for us. I mean, I spoke, I don't speak Punjabi anymore very well, but I used to speak Punjabi quite well. So I was able to kind of pick up stuff from the Urdu speakers, certainly. But, but, but we still needed translation. So that's how we set it up. And that was enormously successful because word of mouth went out and people wanted to come. Mm. So that's why it eventually became a service. It started as a project but became a service. But there is a sad story about that, you know, that, of course, what happened, not maybe completely. I mean, I think if they're listening, the Marlborough Family Service people, they would probably not agree with me completely. But we did take the pressure of the white parts of the service to deal with the clients that came from different backgrounds, right? So it's it, it, like all these things, once you start matching, you know, you're already in dangerous water because then that part can be hived off. And indeed it was because when the Marlborough Family Service went to the Anna Freud Center, that service was propped, the cross-cultural service was propped.
So, you know, it hurts me to say that because we worked hard for it and actually it became another, another the, the, the end result was another marginalization, another discrimination, not an integration, which we had hoped for, you know. Shame, you know, the expertise and the knowledge and the, the practice that must have been created through that project. Yeah, for that yeah. to be lost somehow and, and not integrated into the more mainstream approach. Well, I wasn't involved when it was lost because I had already gone to the Tavistock by then. It was in two, I went to the Tavistock in 2001, but I know that there was an enormous amount of pain at it being lost. And those people who worked in the service, of course, had to go elsewhere mm. because the Anna Freud Center, I mean, I believe that, the then management, it wasn't Alan Cooklin anymore, it was I Arson, but the then management didn't fight for the cross-cultural service continuing. At least that's the way that the people who worked in it felt. Mm. So they went to all different places, you know. And you, sorry, well, I was going to move on a little bit because I was thinking, but you mentioned that you went to the Tavistock in 2001 and I was wondering about your role there and what you took from your your previous role into the Tavistock? Yeah, I'm sure I, I mean, the Tavistock, you know, you might ask, why, why have I persisted so much, mm. right? Because, I mean, I was just an anthropologist and I was interested in crossing into doing clinical work, but I suppose it's very difficult to marry the two in some ways because discrimination becomes so obvious, you know. So anyway, I mean, the, the, the Tavi advertised a, a, a post which was uh, a training and development consultant for race and equity just at the time when the McPherson report had uh, come out or was coming out. It was just around that time. I mean, Stephen Lawrence had not been, been killed, been murdered. And then there was the report looking into his murder. And so many institutions advertised for, because it became, it became, it became uh, a demand that institutions should demonstrate that they tried not to discriminate, right? So many institutions, both in education and in health, sought, tried to sort that out by appointing special people to come in and overlook it. And actually the tabby was very, had a good solution to that because we didn't come in as sort of low level workers as before, you know, you had the ethnic minority worker as it were. We came in at quite a high level and we were kind of, we were kind of in a little team with the then Dean. This was Agnes Bryan and myself. I'm quite sure I got the job because I had done the service in the Marlborough Family Service. And presumably, I mean, I remember a little bit of a battle because of course I'm white, you know, mm -hmm. and really there was still this, there still is, you know, this assumption that a white person can't pick up this banner and, and make a difference with it. I've certainly suffered from that very much, especially lately. But um, so anyway, I, yeah, so I, I got appointed to half of that post to, and the other half was Agnes Bryan. And our remit was to assist the TAVI, the whole of the TAVI, 
you know, the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, educational, all of it, systemic psychotherapy in, in, um, in trying to improve the experience of students or black students in a white organization. That was one. But obviously also, and, you know, this is perhaps more cynical, but just put more black bums on seats. Fortunately, Agnes and I really saw eye to eye about that. And we knew you couldn't put more bums on seats if you didn't try and affect the culture inside the, the organization. But, you know, that was a very hard, that was very hard to do. Very, very hard to do. We, we had, we had that time. Yeah. What were some of the main difficulties you were faced with at the time? Um, reluctance. Immense reluctance and denial. Do you, but do you think it is any different now, though? Do you think reluctance and denial, we have the same barriers now in some way, or do you think that things have changed? No, I think they in some ways have mm. got worse. Mm. I think that there's more doublespeak now. So, people, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hot air about needing to do this, that and the other. But actually the solutions are still... More than then, I think actually there was a little opening with the McPherson report mm -hmm. because at least the McPherson report said, look, it's not bad apples in the box. It is the culture of an institution. And I think that lately what I've watched at the Tavi is that every attempt to do something about it has been back to the bad apples in the, in the box. And yet at the same time, there's been some really awful discriminatory processes going on in institutions that everyone knows about because it's been in the, in the press, you know, about the black social worker and all of that sort of stuff, you know. So it's sort of turned, with postmodernism, I think it's turned that we can have more doublespeak now. So it sounds good, but actually behind it, it's very hard to live up to. And every time I watched it recently, you know, there's still the same mistakes being made which is actually what I wrote about in the paper. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like we've, we've sort of, we're beginning naturally to touch upon the paper. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, I don't know, Cesar or Britt, like where would be a good place to start? I mean, I suppose to name the title of the paper is probably helpful, which is Can We Teach Race and Equity, which you can find in the, the Journal of Family Therapy, February 2022. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, well, I know it says it in the in, in the abstract, you know, about racism persisting dis despite many attempts to eradicate it. And I suppose you're talking really about the, the culture in institutions and yeah. what the blocks are that are still there or... I don't know what words you'd use to sort of describe it. I think I'm sure you'd say it more eloquently than me. So I'll hand over to you, no, Brett. I, I mean, I mean, for the first thing to say is that, you know, race still provokes an awful lot of anxiety, doesn't it? And mm -hmm. that that's not really that surprising because difference provokes a lot of anxiety. You know, we would rather say, oh, we are the same and you understand me and whatever I mean. We would rather have it like that. I mean, almost sort of as a default position. So difference that we don't understand and difference that is very, very different at times. We find it very hard to deal with. So 
in a sense, we're all sort of reacting to something that's kind of a general issue. But that's not to say that, you know, it couldn't be overcome in some way. But um, so the thing about can we teach race and equity? So so in so what I did in the Tavistock since I became so my my post as a training and development consultant stopped in 2015 when I became the lead of the systemic doctors. And, and Agnes Bryan had actually left before that because it was quite intolerable. I mean. I was just so persistent that I still ran the race and equity groups, but you know, it felt like I was sort of holding up something on my shoulders that no one else was supporting very much, apart from, of course, some of the black students very much appreciated. Some of the white students appreciated it because it wasn't just a black group. So I taught a lot of stuff during those 15 years. I mean, I didn't just teach systemic psychotherapy. I taught in the psychoanalytic courses. I, I gave loads and loads of lectures. I did loads and loads of sessions all trying to bring material that I thought might either surprise or provoke or make people think or make people realize what other might be and what effort one needs to put in to begin to connect across that divide. So, you know, I used lots and lots of anthropological material, my own my own clinical material, and so on and so on. So I taught it for a very long time. And I dare say I probably taught you guys. I don't remember whether I did. I know I taught Cesar. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and, and of course, in systemic psychotherapy, that wasn't so strange because I'm a systemic psychotherapist. But, you know, I was called upon. So it became almost, oh, our course must have race and equity lecture. Let's ask for it, right? I mean, I'm not, it was a bit like that. So if you if you consider that you sort of, you know, you've gone from being extremely excited about trying to convey the possibilities that thinking like this could bring for people and their development to really just being a sort of tick box thing, mm. you know, you become quite cynical about it. And also you you accumulate a lot of knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. And so really that is behind can we teach race and equity? Mm. And of course, many a time I I bumped up against, you know, the, the issues that we've got in systemic, the, the way that things are being taught in systemic psychotherapy, particularly such as the graces or such as the cultural genogram. And I've always wondered why take that easy way out? Because in a way, it is an easy way out. I, I'm not disputing that, say, the graces did a job at a certain point in time. But, you know, we're now 2022 and we're still rolling it out as if it does the same job. And actually, I don't ever think it could do the whole job. What it could do is say, okay, we've got to think about this. But as it developed and as it sort of added more and more characteristics, and especially as we had this silly discussion on the Google group about why should it have culture in there, you know, and the kind of the kind of outlooks that people would have when you put culture in there, it's nonsensical because culture is every is all of it, you know. So it's a very crude, it's a very crude tool 
that at most it reminds you, oh, there are differences. But it really doesn't tell you very much about the complexity of, A, what to do with those differences, Mm -hmm. and B, how complex they are. So when I said, can we teach race and culture, it was Mm tongue-in-cheek, because I think in the end, you know, the constant rolling out of graces, the constant rolling out of, of hearing family therapists say, oh, but we're all right because we've got the graces when there's psychodynamic people in the room. You know, that's just not good enough. And then they've sort of not served their purpose, you know. No, I was just thinking about um, the social graces as a tool, and it's something now we do in our team meeting as a, oh, it, as a kind of almost like, we've made sure we've spoken about this stuff and it just feels so flat and it just, it's almost just naming, naming identity markers of the family without really understanding how those things influence their family perhaps and how those are constructed and the process of how they're constructed. And that's what came out when I was reading your paper to get us really thinking about mm-hmm. these things. So it's not just on a superficial level, and helping us really dive deep into some of these ideas. I was just going to add that in some ways what I've got from you, Britt, and maybe if I can before you respond to Cesar, is that that there's it's almost like there's it's there as a template, but we, we become a bit lazy or stuck in some way with that. And there's an invitation to to go a bit beyond that in in some way. And, and think of it is this a process like you mentioned earlier and that processes there's change and are we changing enough or getting yeah. stuck just with the list yeah I mean and 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 remember behind each of those there are processes that's mm. I suppose my point mm. that you know identity is not a thing mm. identity is itself a process mm. and that's really important uh, so in a way, I've experienced them in the way people have responded. I mean, I teach race and equity. You probably had the lecture that I refer to in the, in the paper where I kind of try and show how they're all connected and that it's more dynamic. Because what did graces as things, as, the, as that list, in my experience, I, is in danger of doing. I'm not saying it always does. I know I put sort of, I mean, I've been polemical in that paper, but what it's in danger of doing is stopping people thinking behind it, mm-hmm. is kind of just putting it there. Okay, so now we've done it, tick. And, and what is behind? So, of course, what's behind is really, really complicated, right? But the trouble is that, in a way, we've been teaching all the other stuff as if that isn't about the graces, you know. Mm -hmm. So in a way, my paper is also trying to say, actually, the teaching about race and equity is not just about graces. It's about how we teach about personhood, how we teach about relationships. What is a relationship? How we teach about contexts. And really, I feel that for years in the Tavistock, while I was a training and development consultant, I was trying to put material on the reading list that would have taught difference all the time and really there was no no invitation to take that and I appreciate we went a different time or whatever but but so the point is that you know that if if you're going to teach graces the way it's being taught it it feeds the reaction to complexity rather than 
rather than uh, help it disappear, that, that reaction, you know. It feeds people saying, okay, we've done it. So that means we don't have to do any more. Mm-hmm. Things are not more complex than that. Britt, can I take a risk here? Because it is a risk. And I'm going to ask a really systemic question. I'm wondering if John Burnham was here in this room, what we think he might say to this? Well, he knows. I mean, he 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 wrote a paper in that book about um, mutual perspectives, you know, the book mm. I edited about culture and reflexivity. And he knows that I try and pick him up mm. and he will try and sort of squirm around it but I don't think that John and I don't respect each other I respect him enormously because of, obviously he has a vision and I certainly don't think he uses graces in a kind of mechanical way yeah. although I haven't seen him use it but I think the danger in systemic psychotherapy is that something like that gets taken up and gets waved as a sort of banner that then becomes something we hide behind. Absolutely. And I think what I understand, actually, and I guess partly why I've asked that question, is is trying to support people to look behind and to view those things as processes, just just like you said. Um, yeah. You know, so... In- well, it's just that example that I put in there is, for example, why, haven't, why don't we teach genograms with some question mark? What is the relationship, you know? Is, are we really thinking the relationship between a mother and a son or a father and a son is the same in our culture as it is in other cultures? We can't possibly be serious about that. I mean, we're missing a trick here, you know? We're missing a trick about trying to put difference into other things we teach. Yeah. And and it reminds me of what you were saying about institutions as well, and just having the tick box about racism. There, there is something in us that just gets very drawn to thinking we've done it, we've done that. And I don't know, yes, maybe it is that fear, or maybe I don't know, that stops us from going that bit deeper. And I suppose you're inviting us to take those steps to go a bit deeper and to think behind those things. Yeah, and that's why the paper ends with saying, why not stop and think, stop reacting, stop doing, stop just jumping to the next question that you that comes to you, because actually maybe that question isn't the right question. So let's contemplate and reflect a bit more, you know, about the nitty gritty, about mm. not, let's not accept these standardized things as just as, as they are. Let's reflect more. Let's reflect about the relationship on that genogram, you know, ourselves. Or what does it mean to be a person? Let's ask some hard questions instead of taking refuge in these formulaic Mm. kind of tools. I mean, I did like family therapy for tools, but it goes too far sometimes, you know. Yeah, or maybe too fast I mean when I think of myself with my practice and I think of genograms and I think about maybe doing that in a room with a family there's an aspect and I can only speak for myself here where I think okay once I've done that what do I what do I do I feel like you know I'm exactly what you're saying like I need to think beyond and think think behind and get into that nitty gritty but there's I, I can feel stuck with it sometimes. 
in yeah, some ways. Well, that's good. You know, when I, you must, maybe you remember when I teach that we need to be struggling, mm. you know, because the whole thing about being the same or similar, or sim- the same or different, is going to present us with a struggle and reflection. But do you remember, I mean, you know, I stood in the middle of the minister's side and that side, and, and actually it's in the, in the Pacific, well, this is in, inspired by beyond. So, you know, I grant that I have been inspired by psychoanalysis and all of this too, but, you know, you need to be in a struggling, reflecting position when you're working. And that's the same in research as it is in our inquiry in, in the consulting room, which is why it's brilliant being the lead of the systemic doctorate because, you know, actually the two inquiring modes are so similar. And, and that comes back to what I said in the beginning about how I moved across, you know. Mm-hmm. Listening to you both talk, my, my mind's going to the kind of the, how this stuff occurs in an organisation or in a system, our system, our professional system, perhaps where we lean towards these kind of superficial or what you said, the double, the, the double talk versions of inquiring about these things. Um, and I'm thinking about like managerial culture and outcomes driven to say we've done this stuff, but how much that fits within actually truly engaging and if the motivation's not there. And you in, in your book, The Mutual Perspectives, and in this paper, you make the links between the institutional racism that was highlighted in the McPherson report with systemic, the systemic profession. And you talk about, there's two kind of um, things you mentioned in that in terms of in the training and the supervision, how much space do we make for recognition of the difference between trainers and trainees? Um, but also how much do we actually acknowledge our own colonial roots and how much do we challenge that stuff in, in when we're thinking about some of the core concepts so yeah, I just wanted to hear some more of your your thoughts on that, Britt, that, that link between. Um, I suppose we're talking about reflexivity, aren't we? We're, um, I mean, there's always been, well, that's not true, is it? I mean, the, the, the first order family therapists perhaps weren't seen to be so reflexive, but, you know, some of them probably were just quietly because some of them were very good therapists. We have to give them that. And there's also a lot of problems with, with those approaches, a lot of kind of um, misogynistic kind of attitudes and so on. But the whole bit about reflecting and reflexivity is complex. And so, you know, what we bring to a relationship isn't just what is seen, is it? It is also our history and our personal history, which is, of course, normally accepted, really. I mean, once we began, once we, once we had Carmel Flaskers and we had more interest in, in psychoanalysis, we could begin to kind of think about ourselves more. But from, from a wider perspective, you know, I've always tried to make the point that where we come from is just as much imbued with the cultures and the societies that we've lived in. And there are things that are passed down to us which are coloured by colonialism 
to such an extent that we don't even notice it, mm. you know. So there's something about reflecting on that and where, and, and I, I suppose asking ourselves, where do our concepts come from? You know, why, for example, is our genogram using signs and symbols from genetics? When genetics is only one way of thinking about relationships. I mean, there's all sorts of small questions that one could ask. And I'm not really doing this in order to be, you know, completely sort of self-annihilating or self-critical. Actually, I think that that kind of reflexivity helps you how to go on. It helps you how to ask better questions. It helps to ask, it helps you to keep more curiosity. And I'm not, you know, it's not like you have to get it right. I mean, McPherson was correct about that. It's not about getting it right, but it's about moving something on. And that, that I feel quite strongly about, that what we do, it's the same in research, what we do with reflexivity is not just re reflecting on ourselves in a kind of uh, self-centered way. Uh, it is about how, what to use it for. So I know a lot of students will write essays where they begin to talk about themselves and then they write the essay. But that's not reflexivity, that's reflection. Reflexivity is about what do you use it for then? The way you are, how do you see that making you ask certain questions? And what, what do you do next? So it's not critical in a sense, it's really to move things on. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm connecting it to the bit in the paper on systemic racism when you spoke about the two types of meaning, that kind of toxic meaning and the stories and the ideas that we, yeah, yeah, we get yeah. from our society, our parents and our upbringing. But then the second part of what we do with that now as, as adults, what we've learned and what we will we'll do with it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, something else that's really stuck out for me in reading the paper um, was about thinking about race relationally and contextually mm -hmm. and um i was trying to connect it to like what is a relation really that kind of stuff and that whole baits and ideas of schismal genesis um if, if i said the word right and no, i'm you, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm in, interested in how that relates to race um so there's a quote from Deleuze and Guattari about um, schismogenesis being a relationship which produces its own dynamics. And there is always a social dimension in any relationship, however remote. Is that from Deleuze and Guattari? No. Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Is it um, and so I guess my understanding of it is that that stuff what the kind of the context and the relational stuff that we bring into our understanding of relationship exists even before the that's event or, or what it is. That's, and that's really important. That's really important. And I don't think we paid attention to that. You know, there's so much of family therapy, which is about what's the dialogue now? What's the interaction now? What is happening in the room? What are we doing? And actually, you know, a lot of the narrative, a lot of the dialogical stuff is really interactional. Now, you know, that's only half the story about what's going on, isn't it? Because as you say, there is a relationship before the event. 
of the interaction, always, however remote you are. However, you know, I might sit and get a referral. I only hear about the referral. I already have a relationship to that person or those people. Even if you just read about something, you already have a relationship. There's always something in one from the other. There's always something of the other in the one. It may be a very small bit, and of course it grows, but there's always. So, so the context is always there before the thing that happens. And that's what, that's what Bateson was pointing out in Schismogenesis. The only reason why in that example, the mother's brother and the sister son did what they did is because there was already expectations about what they should do. Now, that was a, a, an easy example because they were in the same social space, but it's still the case. And it's certainly the case in terms of, you know, how you think of others, isn't it? You get them into a position where they, they perhaps don't belong to your group and therefore you demonize them or whatever it is. So there's always a relationship. And that context is inside the relationship. So that, that's what I mean with complex uh, reflexivity, that the relationship itself has all that stuff inside it. And that, of course, makes it very complicated. It's only yesterday we gave a lecture in the, in the Prof. Doc on this, because it's quite different position to take or to start from than the psychoanalysts, where they will be more ready to assume that we are, we are similar, you know, we are developmentally similar, or we have the same psychic structures similarly. Whereas we begin with a relationship being about difference. That's what a relationship is. But nevertheless, there's always, when they get played out, there's always something of one in the other. And that little bit is the context it's right there, isn't it? I mean, you can't teach this very easily, can you? Because it's mind boggling. Mm. But it probably is more useful to kind of acknowledge that when you're in a room with someone, that that's not all that's going on, you know. And I certainly, I mean, I know it from being in, in rooms with, with uh, well, I mean, we all know it from being in rooms with people who are very different from us, you know. Being in a room with a refugee, you know, the, the, the experiences of being a refugee are, are not shed at the door. Being a black person is not shed at the door. The politics are not shed at the door. So we, and I don't actually think that first year trainees are beyond kind of grasping something of this. You know, cause I mean, that's a bit of an insult that, you know, it, it isn't counterintuitive. And it's in it's in there, isn't it? Our kind of our scripts, our family scripts, our life stories and how this influences us in relationally. Um, you also you talk. So you say this thing, how kind of manifest racism is. It's not hard to detect. Like it's, when it's obvious, it's obvious. Right. Um, but what's more challenging is to see how these systems are created and the precursors to this. Yeah. And I'm thinking about what we have as, as from a systemic field that helps to illuminate that and helps to bring those things. And it, I guess it is, I'm connecting it to the things you're saying, Britt, and how we have a, a particular position in the psychotherapy field to shed light on these precursors and, and these processes. Yeah, but we have, had, we have had some difficulties 
uh, due to the fact that we've liked to generalize. You know, we've really loved to generalize. And that, in a way, is Bateson's fault, too, because of this um, theory of logical types, you know, where he goes to the next level up, because that became, you know, the general theory of relationships, which, of course, in his case, didn't cut out detail, but we have taken the general very easily. We speak in general terms. So think about um, life cycles. You know, we like to teach that. Well, of course, people grow. Of course, people age. Of course, they have kids at certain times, blah, de, blah, de, blah. That is, you know, a precursive sort of assumption that we have to make about all human beings. But there's a bit in between that and teaching life cycles, which does not really rely on any difference or any well, how that may pan out in different places. So when, you know, when, when students have life cycles in their heads, I bet you they have their own life cycle in their heads. And it's very hard to conceptualize that this could be done with such different assumptions, you know. So that's one thing. Uh, but it goes all over the place, this sort of stuff, you know, that we, we don't pay enough attention to detail. And, and really, when you think about it, you're, you know, intersectionality is detail. That is different details connecting up in complicated, unique ways. And when you sit with clients, it is about detail. It isn't about general. We like to sort of make a general formulation or talk about relationships being relationships being relationships wherever they are, but they are not. You know, it matters what details we have in there. And so we haven't really been very good at that. And of course, anthropology is excellent at that, you know. Ethnography is excellent at capturing the detail and the way they intersect. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, I can't remember whether I spoke about Foucault's The Fold, but that idea is a very helpful idea, I think. Of course, it's hard to grasp because Foucault is hard, but, you know, he has this notion that the way that a person is and the way that a person connects to its to his or her or the social, economic, political, emotional bits around them is in folds. It's not in layers. It's in folds. It folds in and out. And that, that's kind of a, again, we're, we are emphasizing process, not a static picture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm much more drawn to ideas like that at the moment, as well as to these um, delusion or ideas that are written about in the books that he Deleuze wrote with Guattari. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep up. <laughs> um, my mind was thinking about um, this kind. Of, I'm trying to connect it to like internalized racism is where my my head's coming to, um, or internalized thoughts about this and the kind of precursors of the relationship. And I'm thinking about the the Narvan um study the the Batesonian the Bateson where he speaks about and let me see if I can get this right the mother's brother and the sister's son mm -hmm. yeah almost having parts of each other already existing within each other yeah. yeah and I'm trying to connect that to this idea of when I I'm I'm thinking about it of George Floyd and the police officer. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. something like that, how we might connect that concept in terms of these a racist act, I guess. I don't know why my mind's going to that, but how these things exist in each other, these relational kind of ideas of difference or fear of the other and how it then manifests. I don't know if I'm correct or... That's a good good example, isn't it? That's a good example of how there are bits of the other in one or one in the other. Because, um, you know, the police officer, no doubt, had all sorts of ideas. I mean, they were negative bits. You know, they were they were shadow bits. They were projected bits, the psychoanalysts would say, but they were nevertheless bits, you know, about con- conceptualizing a black man who couldn't be innocent, who only could be culpable, whatever he was doing. And, and George Floyd would have had an, an awful lot of fear, you know. And again... I mean, you know, that's fear that probably was based on on the reality of experience. So that that social relationship was in in them already, you know. It's and of course, you know, that's why the world is not tragically not surprised mm-hmm. when it happens again and again. Mm-hmm. So so I think this is an important point because when I first came to systemic psychotherapy. I really thought, and this was always a kind of irritation, and sometimes, you know, I would be irate at how much relationships were things that were outside people. Whereas actually, of course, the whole bloody thing is also inside us. Mm. It's not like we've got a core that is us, that is separate from whatever it is that else is going on, you know. Mm. And... um, I have some trouble with some identity politics for that reason. Again, because there's sort of a statistic, there's a static kind of image around that. You know, you're born with an identity. You are this, you are that. Whereas many other cultures, and I think even now, of course, with loosening up ideas about gender and sex and so on, you know, you are not what you are in one, in one place at one point. What you are emerges and it might become many things. It's a partial picture. But that's already known by people of New Guinea and other societies. That is the way they think about a person, right? So, you know, there are, there's, there's a wealth of material to be, be had in different places, in different philosophical traditions, to kind of alert us to, this is again, a system is not a system, a system, wherever it is. Mm. And that, that, that's always been, been tragic in some ways, you know. Mm. If you come from anthropology and you are not the old type of anthropologist who was part of the, I mean, I, I was lucky to be training in anthropology at a time when we rebelled against the colonial we were reading Marx and reading groups, and we were part of this new move. So that was lucky, you know. But but with that background, it's very sometimes very frustrating to hear about family therapy and the training that we deliver to our students. Which you know, I don't I don't ever think that anybody is beyond grasping complex ideas. It just depends on how you address them. And how you how you kind of try and 
get them explained, you know, and, and actually you can explain complex things in fairly straightforward ways. I think. Thank you. I, I was I was thinking, Britt, when I've been listening, that in a way there's a there's an invitation from you to notice those things inside and then what do you do with those things and how are you going to bring them into your relationship and your conversation that you are having with someone which reminded me of the word you used near the beginning of our conversation today about why have I persisted with this and I think I'm getting an understanding of (laughs) of why you would (laughs) yeah I don't know I've I've got I had I may be less now but I had a bit between my teeth, didn't I? I had a sort of, I had an urge to, well, also, I mean, I've, I've always found it extremely interesting to cross over. So, you know, my work in Oslo is really about what systemic psychotherapy can give to anthropologists and ethnographers. Mm. And that, that seems to me a, a very fruitful area to begin to influence social science because social science has also been stuck. And uh, I have no more hope, I have no bigger hope for our doctorate students that their work is good enough to be read widely also outside the systemic field, you know, so that it makes an impact. And actually quite often I've been asked to review work that has been done in systemic psychotherapy. And I've often thought it's a shame it doesn't really Managed to speak to a wider audience, you know, because it is a bit myopic. So that's my hopes for the for the for the fields, you know, that actually we can make more of an impact in different places. Because I do think that the other places are becoming much more interested in going into, you know, psychoanalysis has always attracted social scientists, but it's attracted social scientists in this sort of um this sort of fascination with what to what to be a, a clinician a clinician and and to be the one that understands that can offer help or whatever but i think now there's another move which is actually more about sort of what what sort of almost like well what what ways of doing stuff can we take how can we be inspired to do stuff differently when we do ethnography by something like systemic psychotherapy you know I want to comment on how you end the paper, actually. Um, so I think a lot of the lot of the paper was a critique of the way we currently teach in it, and it, and then you end with this. What I thought was it's quite an optimistic position, and I, if I can read it, if that, if that's okay, yeah, yeah, it, it came yeah, yeah. So it says, "I think that while we cannot teach its race, we can highlight it, flag it up." permit to it, shout it, agitate, take political action. We can demonstrate and model it. Above all, we can look for race and racism in white places where we least expect it. We can do all this in the way we talk, reflect and conduct ourselves. I believe that. I think that's true. So that it is, you know, it might be here, you know, it might be there. And and that doubt, I think, is... It's very good. Uh, there, there is this thing about systemic psychotherapy that there isn't enough doubt. I don't think we doubt enough. 
a lot of our theories seem to be straightforward. I mean, the dialogical stuff, it's easy to have a dialogue. Well, it is not easy to have a dialogue. I think there's always a gap in the dialogue. And I, I think I would I think I would kind of try and help my my students anyway doubt more because doubt makes you reflect and think, you know. But I think you're right. I think I'm perfectly, I'm very confident that we do tend to train um, clinicians who, who are politically committed and who are wanting to make a better world. And so the activism is very important, you know, the activism in, in our work. And by that, I don't, you know, we will go on marches and we will, you know, vote and stuff like that. But there's also activism in our, in our work, isn't there? And by questioning and doubting and reflecting, that is a kind of activity, that's a kind of activism that doesn't just push our own agenda. Um, yeah, thank you. It's been amazing to hear, to hear you bring the paper and your ideas to life. Well, thank you for asking these amazing questions. I mean, I really actually did enjoy it. I, I was sort of sceptical and I thought, oh, I'm going to talk again about this stuff. And can I, can I make it exciting? But I think I do get excited myself when I speak about it. I definitely hear that. Definitely. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, no, thank you for coming. And I've noticed that you've got a a new publication. um, Yeah, yeah. Coming out. That's that's really exciting. That's just coming out in June, I believe, it's available. And we will be at EFTA with it. We're going to try and do another. Last year, last time EFTA was, was in Naples in 2019. And the group did a little performance. I mean, this is really where I'm going. Uh, but it's not that you can't use these lenses to look back on and other things, you know. But so, yeah, we, we, are, we, we don't quite know what we're going to do, but we're, we're going to try and do something. Yeah. I mean, that that that. Yeah. I mean, use the coupon and get it cheap. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's currently it, on a reduced, isn't it? So I'm definitely going to order it. And I, I oh, guess I'll just I'll just say it for the podcast purposes, but the title was Ethical and Aesthetic Explorations of Systemic Practice, New Critical Reflections. And that's part of the Systemic Thinking and Practice series. So we'll, we'll put a link for people who yeah, want to, yeah. to purchase yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of Would course, to hear more. you should both come on the doctorate. That's what you should do. <laughs> One day, hopefully. That's that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> you, you definitely you definitely got me thinking about the doctorate and got me excited about it when you were talking for it that's for sure yeah i mean this is this is what we do and you know i'm i i'm i'm so pleased to be doing it because i i have control over what people read in the first year you know mm-hmm. which is brilliant but it would be great to hear about the other stuff that you're doing i know you're doing some exciting research i know we probably don't have the time to to do it now but it'd be great to hear more um about that one day yeah. i mean that is more a follow-up on the influencing social anthropology than the other way around so it's a sort of amalgam you know hopefully and i hope i mean i don't know but i very much hope we might run a course on systemic psychotherapy at university of oslo well I would, we'd love to have you back if you would return to carry on these conversations. 
Yeah, maybe, but not yet. I mean, <laughs> okay. not, so we'll break. not so soon. Yeah. We have to let's see what happens with the book. Let's see yes. what happens with the exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's brilliant. Thank you so much. And you've been very generous in allowing me to come and talk so so much. <laughs> no, it's all ours, honestly. Mm. Very very honoured to spend this time with you. No, Thank that's you, all right. that's all right. I will see you about. I'm sure. Indeed. Have a lovely weekend. Yeah, you too. You Thank too. You so much. Take care. Thank Have you. a good weekend. Bye bye. Bye.